The privilege of um, flying out to Denver, Colorado, and uh, gosh, that's a cool place, isn't it, if you've never been there before. Uh, just two things to make you aware of um, in that trip. The first is I did not participate in any of the Denver, Colorado recreational activities that are now legal. If I seem a little slow or something like that, it's just because there was a two-hour time delay. The second thing, though, it, while I was there, I really felt a, a yearning to grow a man bun. I don't know if you guys have seen these things, but uh, my particular favorite man bun that I saw, and there were many man bun sightings, was the top knot. Uh, you know, in, in that honor-shame culture, too, if you go and you chop off another man's man bun, uh, you have shamed him for life, and uh, so just be aware of that. But the real reason that I was in Colorado is I was participating in a church planting assessment center with Converge. Uh, I'll show a picture of you. This is the crew that was with us. Uh, there were some eight couples that came out to be assessed. And uh, my role as an assessor was to go out there and basically look comprehensively at these individuals' lives. One of the main reasons that Converge does this, uh, they want to determine the fitness of a prospective candidate, is because church planning is no joke. I mean, it is hard work. Uh, statistically speaking, most church plant, plants fail, and most of them fail within the first 12 to 18 months of inception. It's grueling. It requires an entrepreneurial drive coupled with strong leadership ability and an ability to equip others. And uh, planters, I mean, they can just spend hours pouring into people not seeing people come to Christ. So if you're not spiritually healthy, if you're not healthy in your marriage, a lot of them burn out. A lot of church planners have gone through things like the divorce. So we were taking a serious look. We sat down with these couples and evaluated them Tuesday through Friday, three days, working from 8 a.m. till 10 p.m. at night. We took a look at their leadership profile. We looked at Myers-Briggs. We sat down and asked tough questions. And we had to then, at the end of the week, come up with three responses, one of three responses for them. One, we recommend you without condition, go ahead, go church plant. Two, we recommend you with condition. You should really take care of this before you go in church plant. Or three, the one that makes people cry, not recommended. Now, I tell you this to say that I found the entire experience to be personally humbling. I mean, who am I to evaluate someone's spiritual life, their marriage, their missional drive, and, and often as we were asking these people questions, God's elbowing me in the ribs and saying, how are you doing in that area? And I had to say, oh boy, Lord, uh, I think I need to give you control back in my life to that area. You see, God takes you off to assess people and he ends up assessing the assessor. Have you ever taken inventory of your life? I, I find for me that when I'm taking inventory, one of the hardest things, one of the most disappointing things is to realize that I sin on a repeat loop. You do it too. You, you don't sin every sin under the sun. No, you sin particular sins. 
You revisit them. They're like that old friend that you know is not really good for you, but you've been friends a long time, so you just keep going back. Kind of like how water comes down a mountain and, and it forms contours and it seems to follow the same paths. Our hearts, when we give in to certain sins, have contours that are formed and we go back and follow those old pathways. We all have repeat loop sins. And this morning, I'm going to invite you to open your Bible, Genesis chapter 20. And while you're turning there, you're going to see in this story one of Abraham's repeat loop sins. I'm titling this message Take Two because this story sounds familiar. It's like a bad case of deja vu. Didn't we just read this in Genesis chapter 12? What in the world is Abraham doing? Why didn't he learn his lesson? Well, here's the question. Why don't we learn our lesson? Well, we're going to take a look at that as we open up God's Word. So, Genesis chapter 20, and we'll read this entire chapter. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur and Sojourn and Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah's wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Oh, boy. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will, will you kill an innocent people? Did, did he not himself say to me, She is my sister, and she herself said that he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours." So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men uh, were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and uh, said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that uh, you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, well, I did it because I thought that there's no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is a kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants, female servants, and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it please you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech. And also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Take two. 
take two. Once again, we have a story where spiritual failure comes shortly after spiritual victory. After praying for Sodom, Abraham watches God spare his nephew Lot. He decides to go to that old pathway of the region of the Negev, the same pathway that he had followed while he was going down to the land of Egypt. It was that southern region on the periphery of the promised land. And he stays in Kadesh and Shur, which was good for the livestock. And he settles in next to a Philistine city called Gerar. And it was there that Abraham participated in that childhood rhyme, if at first you don't succeed, try and try again. And while that rhyme has many appropriate applications, I don't sense that it's suggesting that you should pose your wife as your sister two times in a row. So two times we read this. Two times Abraham makes a foolish decision. Two times he's burned for the same decision. But here's a big question, an important question. Why in the world would Abimelech want to marry a 90-year-old woman? I mean, anybody else thinking this? I'm just kind of like, ugh, I don't get this. Well, there's some good answers. Maybe they're just not as shallow back then as we are today, though I, I'm not quite sure on that one. No, I think one likely suggestion is that if Sarah is about to have a baby, God must have rejuvenated her physical appearance. Good job, Abraham. This little scheme of yours is remarkably successful, isn't it? Now, we all want to ask the same question. Why did you do it, Abraham? What were you thinking, man? I mean, come on. You know that this isn't going to work out well for you, and yet you keep coming back to it. I think that as we look at this story, we see two uh, realities that we face that tend to cause us to commit repeat loop sins. The first reality has to do with change and uncertainty. Hebron was a place of comfort for Abraham. When he was there, he knew the ropes. He found it to be safe, secure. He knew the people. But it seems like every time that Abraham starts changing location, that problems occur. I mean, listen to that little wimpy explanation in Genesis 20:11 again. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. You see, the change... And uncertainty of Abraham's new location caused him to revisit that old familiar friend who was no good for him. I've often found that new moments in my life can be very vulnerable times. Why? Because new circumstances present you with new tests. What kind of changes am I talking about? Well, How about the change when you're sitting in that hospital room and and the doctor comes in and delivers that news that you really didn't want to hear? Or, Or the change that happened when your father, who is your source of strength, who you could always call and rely upon, has passed away? Or the change that happens when your 13 year old child becomes Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde on you? Or how about the change that occurs when you find out that your spouse 
has failed you in some significant way. Or one of your friends says, I'm moving to Wyoming, and you take it personally because no one moves to Wyoming. (laughs) Or you get called into your manager's office and learn that you no longer have a job. It's a new day. Yesterday, you're living in Hebron. Life's good. Life is moving along, but today is new, and it doesn't matter how much you want to avoid change. It doesn't matter if you say to yourself, I'm never going to go over the Cape Cod Bridge. Change will come to you. Those new moments will arrive. And so you have to ask yourself a question when it comes. Will I continue on the pathway of faith or will I follow the route of fear? And Abraham seems to always follow that latter route. Let's talk about another reality. Another reality that can cause us to commit repeat loop sins are what I like to call pressure points. A pressure point is an area where we are susceptible or vulnerable. It's a chink in your armor. Uh, There's many characters in the Bible where we learn about their pressure point. You remember Moses? You know what his pressure point was? It was anger, wasn't it? He sees that Egyptian soldier oppressing one of the Hebrew slaves, and in anger, he rises up and he takes his life. Or when he comes down and he sees that sin of the golden calf and throws down the Ten Commandments and breaks them. Or he's standing out in the wilderness, and in anger, strikes the rock, and God says, you are no longer permitted to go into the promised land. Or what about old Samson? You know, that meathead, that... You think of that commercial of Planet Fitness, I pick things up, I put them down. I mean, this guy is not the sharpest knife in the drawer, is he? Ladies just keep coming to him, and he keeps falling for their deception. Why? Because his pressure point was sexual lust. What was King David's? You might think the same thing, but I think his pressure point was his ego. You see, he falls into the sin with Bathsheba during the time of year when the kings are supposed to be out with their armies. But he felt pretty confident. Or the time that he took that census because he wanted to know just how much wealth and mass he had accrued over the years. Abraham, his pressure point was fear. Every time that Abraham would change location, fear would seize his heart and he would devise schemes. Look at the second part of his lame explanation, verse 13. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So this is not the second time that he's done this. You see that? It says he did this at every place, at every new city. Abraham would say, Sarah, you know what to do. He was doing this a lot. When that pressure point of fear was being pressed, Abraham would lie. And then he would ask Sarah to lie. And he got away with it most of the time. The problem was, two times, he didn't get away with it. Two times, he almost lost everything. What is your pressure point? Maybe it's work. Maybe you so badly want to fit in with your peers and friends that you fall into regular rhythms, of course, language and vulgarity with them. 
Some people, their pressure point is a feeling of inadequacy that they've carried with them their entire life. And because they have never dealt with that feeling of inadequacy and experienced the overwhelming love that God has for them, they find themselves giving in to various addictive patterns, like using pornography. Because they feel inadequate, but when I do this, I start feeling in control. I feel like I matter. Or is it the fear of being alone? So when it comes to dating, you disregard important qualities like character and faithfulness and conviction so that time and time again, you're on this repeat loop of stupid dudes or stupid chicks. Or maybe you are hypercritical of others. You've developed that attitude because, well, dad was never happy with anything you did. He never said, I loved you. You tried as hard as you could to please him. He only ever saw your flaws, so now your sin nature has warped your mind to believe that you are powerful when you are critical. The danger of these pressure points is if we don't learn to trust God with our fears, our hang-ups, those places and people that we struggle with, we are going to grow to become an inconsistent Christian. And i got to tell you, if you're an inconsistent Christian, that's a dangerous place to be. In fact, in this text, I think we see three dangers involved with being an inconsistent Christian. The first danger is that in our inconsistencies, we end up hurting other people. I mean, think about Abraham's choice these two times now. The first time, we took a lot of time to observe how his choice had affected Sarah. She goes into Pharaoh's households. The door's shut. We don't know what happened. What happened in Pharaoh's household stayed in Pharaoh's household. This time, though, at least we see that God prevented Abimelech from touching her. We also see that Abraham's sinful choice affected Abimelech and his people. Look at God's response, verse 3. Behold, you are a dead man. How'd you like that in your dreams, huh? Mm Mm-mm. And then in verse 4, Abimelech, being ignorant in the matter, he says, Lord, will you you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say she's my sister? And, And she herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. I have done this. Now, while he was innocent in his motives, Abraham's deception placed Abimelech in a dangerous situation because it didn't matter if he didn't know that Sarah was married This whole situation is still wrong in the eyes of the Lord. It reminds me of that legal principle. Ignorance of the law excuses not. Even if Abimelech was ignorant of the marriage, it was still very wrong. But then God displays his mercy. In some way, he had given Abimelech a sickness so that he wouldn't touch her, so that he wouldn't transgress in this way. Let's talk about danger two. Our inconsistency destroys our witness. Verse 7 tells us the first time in all of the Bible that someone is a prophet. Now, a prophet is someone who receives revelation from God and then mediates that revelation onward to other people. Now, isn't it interesting that the first time, and maybe a little bit sad, that we hear the mention of the word prophet, the prophet is being kind of a jerk. You thought about that? How do you think Abimelech felt about Abraham's God or Abraham's choices? We get a little understanding of that in verse 8. I mean, what have you done to us? 
How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. You think Abraham made God look good here to Abimelech? No. See, when Christians walk in inconsistency, they destroy their witness of Jesus. Remember Abraham in Genesis 12, 3 was called to be a blessing and yet because of this pressure point fear that he keeps giving into, he's bringing with him curse in every city that he enters into. It's always tragic when, when Christians lead that double life and they destroy their Christian witness. I mean, we're living in those times right now, aren't we? August 5th of this year, the New York Times published an article titled, He's a Superstar Pastor. She worked for him and says he groped her repeatedly. Now, it was an expose on that famous world-renowned preacher, Bill Hybels, who founded and started Willow Creek Church in Chicago. Uh, Hybels has been accused by at least 10 women of harassment, and at least one of those allegations finds its way all the way back into the 1980s. So here we're talking about Almost 40 years of repeat loop sins. And the story is rocking the evangelical world. Sadly, this is just another example among many. Ed Stetzer, a distinguished professor from Wheaton College, shared this sad reflection. When my wife and I were in California in March, we had lunch with Rick Warren and Kay Warren after church. We talked about a Saddleback conference from 2010 when Rick Kay and I spoke, and since that conference, about half of the speakers have stepped down from the churches they were serving due to some personal issue. I mean, wow. Half in eight years. Friends, that's tragic. That's sad. That's an absolute mess. And it's greatly hurting the influence of the evangelical church in America. So as I continue to process this this situation, I I always ask it through the lens of not what should Bill Hybels have done, but what should we do with it today? And I want to give you a couple of thoughts or suggestions as I've thought about this. I think the first thing is that we must stop treating gifted pastors like they are superstars. This reckoning that the church is facing today is partially due to our own willingness to elevate men and women to celebrity status. Few people can handle millions of adoring fans constantly stoking their ego and telling them that there's something superior and special. I couldn't handle that. I know I couldn't. Also, How do we know that this man or woman is worth emulating? Do we know anything about them? Do we know who they are when no one is looking as an American church? Have we been guilty of calling men and women successful for all of the wrong reasons? Can they get the crowds out? Do they tell good stories and mix in a little Bible? Did I laugh or cry or smile when they were talking? Do they attract me in some way? Friends, Bug uh, zappers attract mosquitoes, don't they? Right? Come on. So God's man 
or woman must not be elevated because of some kind of exterior attractive quality. You know, in 1 Samuel, the, the king that was attractive wasn't David. It was Saul. It tells us in 1 Samuel 10, 23, when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from the shoulders upward. They're just sitting there thinking to themselves, look at this guy. I mean, this is the type of guy that could stand out in front of the army. He's an opposing figure. He's going to make a great king for us. Well, how did Saul turn out? He was a spiritual dud. He was not God's man. No, God's man was this little shepherd boy who tended sheep for his father. He was the youngest of eight sons. And he would talk to God at night while he was out in the fields and play music and and write psalms to him. Samuel actually needed a little instruction to be ready for David. He was looking at the oldest son, thinking that surely this is God's guy. And God says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees and looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There are too many churches with incredible pastors who pray for their people, read God's word for their people, show up to the hospital when no one else will show up, will disciple, and they're half empty. Because we as American Christians, we're we're running after all of the trappings. What if you are not overwhelmingly attracted to the kind of leader that God could use to lead you to spiritual greatness? What if instead you are overwhelmingly attracted to the kind of leader who can only lead you to spiritual mediocrity? Also, we must look only to Jesus as our model of faith. Stetzer rightly notes, no man or woman ought to be lifted to places of idolatry lest they crumble under the weight of sin. And all leaders, all leaders, to some degree, will crumble under sin in some way. Jesus is the only one who can lead us without crumbling. So when people say to you something along the lines of, yeah, there we go, Christians talking a big game, knew it, their leaders falling, just like dominoes all across America, our response should be something like this. You're right. That was hypocritical what they did. It was wrong. But he's not my leader. Jesus is my leader. Hebrews 4.15, Jesus understands our weaknesses for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Basically, if you can point to one sin that Jesus committed, if you can point to a sex scandal or or some kind of abuse of power or some corruption of money in Jesus' life, then yes, Christianity does not have a leg to stand on. But I got to tell you, it's about 2,000 years now and nothing surfaced. How do you think that's going to work out? One more thought. The world needs to see Christians walking by the Spirit. See, Christianity, yes, it rises and falls on Jesus, but non-believers desperately need to see the Christian message align with the Christian life. Those two things must go together. So when I say that I am a Christian, but I live my life like a hedonist, that's a problem. It's a big problem. 
Abimelech did not need Abraham to come to his city and lead a false life. He needed Abraham to come into his city and bless that city and tell that city about who God is. There's so many people at that church planting assessment center. I'm just seeing more and more how many people are going secular. They're walking away from God. Those people need to see Jesus in our lives. They need to see the Jesus life lived out in us. And then they need to hear the message of Jesus as we proclaim it. And when those two things go hand in hand, you know what happens to Arius. The gospel flourishes. So we need to see that. Because inconsistency will only damage their ability to come to know Jesus. So if you're wondering, how do I walk in the Spirit? You want to learn more about that. We do have a small group that we'll be doing in the fall called Jesus Continued. I encourage you to check that out. Now, I've just got one more negative little thing to say, and then we'll get happy. We'll get into happy Jesus and not negative Jesus. So let's look at one third and final danger, danger number three. If left unchecked, our inconsistency will ultimately destroy us. So if we leave that sin in the repeat loop, um, that's dangerous for the Christian soul. Why are we in the loop in the first place? And I would submit to you it's because we are relying on ourselves. What happens when I chronically rely on me instead of walking by faith? Well, Theologians have called, uh, given that a term, they've called it carnality. You, you've heard the expression of a carnal Christian. Chuck Swindoll uh, gives us a definition for that. He says, it's based on carne, the Latin for meat or flesh. It's the idea of living life by human ability rather than looking to or leaning upon God and his promises. He continues, invariably, When we choose carnality, we find temporary satisfaction followed by deeper need and eventually death. That's what happens when we stay in the loop. Paul Harvey once shared an illustration that powerfully captures how choosing sin um, to find fulfillment can lead to death. He writes this, I shall now recite the manner in which an Eskimo kills a wolf. The Eskimo coats his knife blade with blood and allows it to freeze there. Then the Eskimo adds another layer of blood and then another. As each succeeding smear of blood freezes to the blade of the knife, the Eskimo adds an additional coating until the blade is concealed by a substantial thickness of frozen blood. Then the knife handle is buried in the ground with the blade up. The maraudering wolf follows his sensitive nose to the scent and tastes of that fresh, frozen blood, and it licks it. More and more vigorously, the wolf licks at the bait until the keen edge of the knife is bare. Feverishly now, he licks harder. In the Arctic night, so great becomes his craving for blood that he does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue, nor does he recognize the instance at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. More, his carnivorous appetite craves more until dawn finds him dead in the snow. As you consider this story, it's important to ask this question, why did God get involved the way he did? 
I mean, that's a pretty direct involvement. He approaches Abimelech in a dream. He says to him, you're going to be a dead man. And that's a pretty loud and clear message, isn't it? He got involved because Abraham had jeopardized one of his good promises. God said to Abraham, start the clock. There's going to be a baby in a year. That's exciting news. And Abraham just has one job. Sit there, don't do anything stupid. That's all he has to do. So, so what does Abraham do? Well, he snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat. He creates an impossible mess. That's what happens when we live the carnal life. We, we create these huge moral tangles. Uh, sometimes uh, my, my youngest son, Isaac, will run off and play with Katie's yarn balls. And I got to tell you, in four minutes or less, like a magician, he can create some masterpieces that can only be untangled by scissors. It's an impossible knot. That's what faithless Abraham does. He creates impossible moral tangles. He had one job, sit and wait, and now Sarah's locked up in some foreign, with some foreign king. And if that marriage is consummated, then how in the world are we going to know that the child of promise is the child of promise? I mean, what a mess. But there is an encouraging verse that explains how God operates when one of his good promises are on the line. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Would you say that verse with me on the count of three? One, two, three. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Amen. That's what I need to hear this morning. I need to know that God's promises are not contingent on my abilities or my actions. Maybe that verse resonates deeply with your heart this morning. You look at your life and you think, oh, my life is just one big moral knot that I've created. Who could possibly untangle this mess? I'm going to tell you, you're not alone. You're not alone in the least. Everyone in this room has sinned against God. The phrase, I am not perfect, that phrase is axiomatic. That means that when someone says, I am not perfect to you, you don't question it. You believe them. Friends, we've all led inconsistent lives. We've all been like one of those wolves hungrily licking the knife blade to our own denies. But even though we are faithless, he remains faithful. You see, the gospel is this. God is in the business of untangling our moral messes. He did this through Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So sin creates that moral knot. Uh, sin fuels that craving for more sin in our life. But then Jesus enters the picture. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So in Jesus, by grace, God untangles those impossible moral knots. In Jesus, God takes that, that deadly hunger for sin that I've carried with me my entire life and he changes that craving to a hunger for righteousness. In Jesus, God says, 
Have you been stuck in those repeat loops for years? I can work with you. I can work on you if you will walk by faith. See, in Abraham's case, God doesn't just entangle this impossible moral knot. No, he goes a step further. He puts Abraham back in the game. He continues to work through him. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. Isn't that amazing? Not only does God fix the impossible problem, but he graciously restores fallen Abraham to effectiveness. Have you ever felt disqualified? Maybe there's a skeleton in your closet and it's there. And you know it's there. Maybe no one else knows it's there, but you do. Oh, and of course, Satan, who regularly whispers into your ear, that you are not qualified. Maybe that skeleton is those 10 years where you turned your back on God or, or that abortion that you had so many years ago that you've never told anyone else about or that addiction that you're struggling with right now or that hidden sexual shame that you've carried with you for so many years, and Satan brings it up often, and he says, disqualified, you know what people would think if they found out about this. You know what God thinks about this. Have you ever heard that voice before? Well, I have. Was Abraham qualified? See, the type of guy that we'd say, yep, Meets all the description, job description qualities. Think about it. I mean, he began life as an idol worshiper. Did a lot of things there. But you say, oh, but that's his pre-Christ life. So we give him a pass for all that. Okay, that's fine. Give him a pass. But what about after God called him? Didn't he commit adultery? Didn't he on multiple occasions create such a masquerade that he almost lost his wife twice? Well, now we start thinking to ourselves, well, I guess he is disqualified and no longer fit, not up to scratch. Well, let me ask you another question. When was anyone ever qualified to do God's unconventional work? If that voice has been in your head saying, you can no longer serve God, you've sinned too greatly, you just need to ride the bench for the rest of your Christian life, I am here today to shower you with grace from God's word. Hear that message of grace. Absorb it. Feel it. Know that God's not finished with you. Know that God can still work in your life and work out his good purposes and that your job is pretty simple. You just walk by faith and you do whatever that entails. Oh, whatever that entails, that can sometimes be the painful part because sometimes that means doing incredibly humbling things. Do you think that Abraham felt very good when he had to go back to Abimelech, look him in the eye, and pray for him. Oh, I don't think his shoulders were cocked back like a peacock. No, no. I think that he felt humiliated. Sometimes walking by faith involves humble repentance. 
Sometimes it means going back to that person that you've offended. You haven't talked to them for years because you're ashamed and admitting it and saying, I'm sorry. Sometimes walking by faith means confessing that deep, dark secret that you've held on to for years to another Christian. And I'm not saying go share all your secrets with everyone. Don't do that. That would be foolish. Some of the stuff in your life is no one else's business except for a closed circle of Christian friends who you know will be gracious with you, who won't judge you. But you do need to bring that out. You do need to confess it. You need to move forward. Walking by faith means all kinds of different things. But know this. You're never stuck with God. You're never stuck. If you will start walking by faith today, He will put you onto His unconventional mission. How do I know that? Because He's done it with me. And I've committed great sins against the Lord. I have but he put me into his mission. And I've heard that voice of Satan say disqualified, but God's word says even louder, qualified in Jesus. Let me close with this verse in Colossians. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Would you bow your heads with me?